How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me slash growth. That's hbs.me slash growth. Today's Locked On Bucks is brought to you by SeatGeek. Download the mobile app for the easiest way to buy tickets, and the promo code LOBUCKS gets you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. Again, that's L-O-B-U-C-K-S. Welcome to Locked On Bucks, hosted by BrewHoop.com and presented by SeatGeek. I'm Eric Name, and as always, I'll be joined by Frank Madden. In this episode, we'll continue our conversation with our very special guest, Brett Cormenis. Brett has ridden at Grantland, Sports on Earth, and now Real GM. He's a Wisconsin native who moved to Arizona and now does a ton of work in player development. He's written some great stuff about the NBA over the years. We obviously pay a lot of attention to it, but as a native Wisconsinite, he pays a little bit more attention to the Bucks. He recently wrote a piece at Real GM about the Bucks that we mentioned in our first part and we'll mention in the second and third part as well. But instead of talking about that, let's get back into the conversation with Brett. Well, one of the things I was kind of thinking of there, Brett, is you were discussing Giannis and, and the importance of giving him the ball and how important just having the ball was for his development and, and his growth last year was, you know, thinking about Jabari Parker and obviously a very different type of player, um, a different type of skill set. Um, one of the kind of things that I've, I've really liked about Jabari is, um, that he seems to be pretty decisive, um, with the ball. Like you look at his, and I was looking at his, um, you know, his kind of time of, of possession numbers, uh, you know, doesn't take a lot of dribbles, doesn't use the ball, doesn't keep hold the ball much. Um, a guy who had, you know, has played pretty well even when he's not just a guy kind of getting thrown the ball in, in ISO heavy sets, hasn't been getting necessarily tons of looks as, you know, a post-up guy, obviously has not been a, a pick and roll ball handler much. Um, but a guy who has played pretty well second half of last season, um, by being, you know, more of a cutter and, and I think you were alluding to, you know, a guy who can basically catch it and make a decisive move, take one, one, two dribbles and, and try to get to the rim. Um, you know, as you look at Jabari and, and kind of, you know, he's a, obviously, a, you know, at least one step behind Giannis sort of in his overall development arc. And a lot of that's, you know, cause of the injury. But when you think about Jabari and, and his skills and, and maybe some of his untapped skills as well, um, you know, how would you try to put Jabari as, you know, think of it maybe from a coaching standpoint or, or development standpoint. Um, you know, how do you kind of get the most out of a guy like Jabari Parker, especially, you know, given that you have a player like Giannis around who um, clearly has skills with the ball and, and is a guy who's going to be getting the ball to, to start most sets? Well, yeah, that, you know, that's a, <laughs> it's, it's a trickier question, um, you know, than it, than it seems, um, you know, because the, the one thing that you learn with dealing with these guys is that, um, you know, sometimes, especially for the guys that don't have success, the gap between what they think they need to be to make a career in the NBA and what they actually need to do to make a career, the bigger that gap is, the more chances that you're going to see them fall out of the league. Um, and so with a player like Jabari, you know, he's got to, he's got to come to an understanding that if he is going to be with, with Giannis and the Bucks have, have come and told him and said, Hey, like, you know, Giannis is going to have the same role that he did in the second half of last season. It would, it should change the way he approaches his own game. So if you put Jabari on a team where maybe there wasn't an up and coming young guy that dominated the ball, 
you know, you know, he's such a young kid. His game can grow in any number of ways, you know, especially over the next couple of years. Um, so if he went to a situation where he could have the ball in his hands more, you know, you could work on different things. Um, you know, you could work on isolation stuff, elbow attacks from like Mello had. You can work on post up stuff. You can work on some pick and roll stuff if you wanted to. Um, but if, if, you know, if I was working with him as a player development coach of the Bucks, you know, I, I would tell him, listen, I said, you know, if you, if you want to take your game to the next level, what you need to do, number one, is you need to have shot equity from behind the three-point line so guys have to run at you because the minute that they get guys running at him from the three-point line, even if it's corner three, he is so quick and explosive going downhill off one dribble, it's over. Um, and the only reason, and he, and he's really good at, at what we call attacking closeouts. So, you know, whenever, uh, you know, a help defender has to run back out to a guy that's catching a pass, that's called a closeout. And, uh, you know, so he can already beat what's called a soft close, which is a guy that basically is closing out way short of him, daring him to shoot the three. He's so explosive and so good with one quick change of direction dribble that he can beat those soft closes already. And so imagine what he could do if he had a guy that had to run all the way up to his body to try to take away a shot. Um, you know, and that's the kind of thing is, is with him, I would, and we, we shoot a lot with our own guys. We really value that skill. We feel it's something that is vitally important for guys to maximize their earning potential as players, especially with the way the NBA is. You just need to be able to shoot the basketball all, from all positions. Um, and so, you know, for him, I would, just tell me he needs to make countless corner threes, uh, every type of footwork, you know, that he needs, whether it's sliding out of the corner, whether it's a strict, you know, catch and, catch and shoot, whether it's where he's backpedaling out and he's got to set his feet and shoot it, um, to find that one spot on the floor where he's going to have some equity, where he can shoot league average, and when they game plan for the Bucks, uh, you know, coaches are going to say, hey, you know, this this kid's, you know, he's he's knocking down these shots now, like you got to get into his body, you got to try to chase him off the line. Um, and hope the second line of defense can rotate over and stop him. Um, you know, so if he adds that to his game, um, as well as kind of continuing to be economical with his dribbles when he's in those situations and, and working on just, you know, quickly getting to the, to the basket, um, you know, or, or making another pass out if he doesn't have a great, uh, a great shot near the rim on a closeout, you know, those are the two things that he could, he could work on. Um, you know, in some ways, I think the the thing you pitch to him is, is I mean, he's never going to be, I don't, oh, well, maybe he will. I mean, he could be if he put his mind to it. Um, the defensive player that Sean Marion was, but kind of being the Sean Marion to where Giannis, I guess, in this analogy would be like a Nash. Um, you know, a, an excellent cutter, a guy that, if, you know, if somebody turns their head, he can cut right to the basket and it's a lob to the rim, um, can hit shots if guys soft close on him at a, at a respectable enough clip that you have to respect it. And then every other play, he's going downhill and he's getting into the paint off those catches and he's trying to rip the rim off or get to the free throw line. Um, and that, and, and he would, he could be one of the best, if not the best player in the league at doing that if he just gets that three point equity a little bit higher where he's around league average at some point. And that's a scary combination. I mean, if you have Giannis handling like that and you've got a kid on the perimeter like Jabari Parker doing that kind of stuff, you know, and with as well as Chris Middleton shoots it. You know, that, that's a team that's, that's a contender for, that's a 50 win team right, right there with those three. Before we go any further, I do need to mention our wonderful sponsor of this podcast. That is SeatGeek. 
Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. And that's true. I am going to a wedding in a little while in St. Louis. The Brewers will be playing the Cardinals, so I obviously... Had to pick up tickets for that one. I went, downloaded the SeatGeek app, and got my tickets for that. Used our promo code that I'll talk about a little bit later. But it was so easy. And then I kept looking on the app and looked at different shows and stuff like that. And I didn't You can buy concert tickets on there. I was looking for tickets to the Schoolboy Q show, and they were there. Mac Miller show. There. And, I mean, those are those are concerts at the Rave. So they have everything you could ever want. Any type of ticket, you can find it there. Any venue, it will be there on the SeatGeek app. It's, it's crazy how much stuff is there, so you need to make sure you download that today. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. SeatGeek does all the price comparisons for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work, and you save time and money. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. And, again, on the app, it's so easy. You literally will see green dots that are good, yellow dots that are not so good, red dots that are bad. So you can kind of tell exactly what you should be looking for, what tickets are good, and you can obviously move the slider around to figure out how many tickets you need. You can move the slider around to figure out how much money you want to spend on these tickets. It's so easy to use, and, and really, the best part about this entire deal is we got a deal for you. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, i got four easy steps for you. Download the SeatGeek app, which you should already have done. Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter promo code LO Bucks. Again, that's locked on bucks. L O B U C K S L O B U C K S. Step four. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app today and enter promo code LO Bucks. Now, let's get back to the conversation. When I think about Jabari and then in relation to Chris, we talked about Middleton kind of getting a little bit too much playmaking responsibility where he was handling the ball a lot, he was in a lot of pick and rolls, and he wasn't that spot-up guy. Is there I, I, is it that Jabari would need to take some of that playmaking role for them to move Chris into that, or do you think there's enough playmakers on the team that they could just move Chris into a better three-point shooting role where they, I guess, leverage that weapon a little bit better. I mean, I, I think it just depends on what type of type of system you want to want to run. You know, there's there's two schools to, you know, how basketball can be played. Um, you know, I, I mean, it, it, well, I guess in terms of like these newer, you know, kind of spacing-oriented systems. Um, you know, one, it, it, you know, it's like, it's like you see with a guy like a Nash or a Rondo or you know, someone who, who's really good at, at dominating the basketball for the entire possession, but whether it's going to be a shot for himself or a shot for a teammate, you know, they can pretty much hold the ball for 20 seconds and you're going to get, you know, Chris Paul would be another player like this. They're going to create good offense. And the Spurs are a little bit different in the fact that the ball moves and everybody touches it and there's multiple screens in a possession and, um, you know, you're getting the, the defense rotating and the ball swinging side to side. 
Um, you know, they got a, away from that a little bit this year. The Spurs did. They did a lot more post-up stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what the logic was behind that, but it was just different. Not saying it was worse. It was just different. Um, and so if you, you have an offense like the Spurs, every single guy that you have playing on the floor needs to be really good at doing multiple things. So, you know, you can't have a guy that just is a great closeout player if your offense calls for – one pick and roll to sw- you know swing the ball through the big and then he reverses it and then they get into another pick and roll you know you need to have everybody that can do everything and so the Spurs part of which makes the Spurs great is their um, player development structure ties into what they do offensively so well that they get guys they make them really well-rounded players because they get these guys that you know have kind of been checked and they're willing to work on their games and they're willing to, to take a secondary role and all that kind of stuff and move the ball and so they turn them into the type of players that they need uh you know Danny Green couldn't run a pick and roll to save his life when he first came into the league you know now if you watch his film from this last year he's making left-handed hook passes to you know shooters on the wing when the tag comes in on the roll man um you know and that's part of you know what they the Spurs value and they build in and that's that's their program that's what makes them so good is they they think that far ahead with their individual players. So with Milwaukee, you know, you could do stuff like that where Chris Middleton is a secondary ball handler, where, you know, Jabari is a secondary ball handler if you're playing him more as a three. Um, but you have to you have to have that tie in. Everything's got to be tied in together. That means that you where you're spending your time is those guys are developing those skills to fit an offensive system that relies on that type of stuff. Um, now the other way to go is more just basically you just view your personnel and you say, this guy's good at this. This guy's good at this. You know, Chris Middleton is a great spot up guy and good coming off screens. Jabari is a great closeout attacker and cutter. Giannis is great with the ball in his hands. I'm just going to build my system. So those guys only do those things. And, um, and that's it. And that's all they do. And if they want to get better at those things, they, they have a summer on their own that they can do that with. Um, and then if they come back and they show these new skills, like we'll build that into our system. Um, so that, you know, that's kind of more of like a reactionary way to, to build your offensive structure. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to the Bucks specifically, you know, Middleton can certainly develop those things, um, you know, but it's not always as easy to as, you know, saying Jabari can, can take the playmaking responsibility or vice versa with, with Middleton because certain guys – and we, and we have this with some of our guys. Um, you know, we, we have a particular, uh, a player that, that's, uh, you know, he's an NBA player. Uh, fortunately is, is playing overseas this year, but he's got the talent to be in the league and he was a scorer all college. He's kind of was labeled a combo guy coming out and he's made such great strides as a playmaker because he's a good dude and he realizes he needs that balance in that game and he wants to make the NBA, but not every guy is like that. Um, so he made strides transitioning from a, a bucket getter to being more balanced. Um, but you will just find that some guys can never break out of that mold. Um, you know, we had another player uh, that came into us, you know, from the college ranks that ended up hanging on an NBA team last year. And he was strictly a passer. All that kid wanted to do was pass the basketball. And we told him, we said, after about 15, 20 games, teams are going to play you for the pass. And you need to be able to hit a pocket jumper. You need to be able to hit a little floater. You need to be able to finish some of these instead of to get into the rim and trying to throw it out or what we call midgeting where you drive, you kind of circle through the baseline like Nash used to do. Um, 
And, you know, eventually he figured it out on his own. That The defense started taking away those passes. They started veering back to the roll man, stuff like that. And, you know, he had to learn how to score. So there is only so much that you can do. It's just always going to depend on the people. If Jabari really wants to be a playmaker and, and does that, you can train him to do it. But if Jabari doesn't have the mentality, Jabari Parker doesn't have the mentality to want to make plays for his teammates, then you just kind of got to roll with it. You got to understand that that's what he is. It doesn't mean that he's a worse player or a worse person. It just means that's just who he is. It's how he's been built as a basketball player. And you can either try to shove a square peg into a round hole or you can try to find, you know, a square hole to put it in. Brett, one of the things you wrote about in the piece was some of the challenges the Bucks have with the rotations and the skills. Um, that they have on that roster. So this kind of gets in a little bit kind of what you're alluding to. Um, as far as, you know, some teams have, you know, everybody can shoot and everybody can defend, and that's just probably the easiest types of <laughs> lineups to build because, you know, you, you can easily complement guys. Um, with these lineups, what are you were you kind of thinking of when you were writing about that? I mean, are there certain kinds of combinations? I mean, a lot of obviously a lot of times, like we think defensively, we say like, okay, well, you, you know, you want to avoid Jabari and Monroe, or you want to avoid, you know, Toledovich and Jabari and Monroe, or you want to avoid lineups where you know it's MCW and Giannis and you know not Middleton or, or whatever it might be. Um, what are you, you know, if, if you were kind of in Jason Kidd's shoes, I mean, what are some of the kind of lineup nuances or, or kind of rules of thumb that you might use kind of when you look at the team's skill sets that, that you've got at your disposal and, and how you can kind of best make use of those skills and, and find those kind of complementary um, skills and, and make sure that you're making the most of that on the court? Yeah, I mean, again, this is where I got to preface that I have, uh, I have zero, zero NBA coaching wins to my credit, but, um, you know, I'm a little bit different in, in things that I've done in the past and things that I've recommended to teams that I've worked with is that, um, when you have something where the Bucks have to be so specifically, uh, or so careful about how the specifics of their rotations go together, I, I'm a big fan of scripting lineups to avoid human error. Um, you get a lot of the old school coaches that coach by feel, and then all of a sudden that's where you get a bench player that comes in and he gets hot, and then he plays 17 minutes straight, and then all of a sudden in the last four minutes of that little run, he's gassed. The team, the team kind of peters out, um, and and that happens. I mean, human beings with the number of decisions that you have to make in a basketball game, um, you know, with the the pressure and the intensity and you know the atmosphere of coaching an NBA game, you know, especially in one that where the stakes are high or it's intense or it's between two really good teams and very competitive. Um, it's very easy for human beings to screw up. We're we're very infallible as or we're very fallible as decision makers. Um, and so when that's the case, and when you know that you have to really maximize, you know, in the Bucks case, they're shooters. They have to have guys on the floor because you know when you look at NBA.com lineup data. You know, you can see the, some of the five-man combinations they rolled out, and they gave themselves no chance to be competitive on one end of the floor or the other with some of the combinations that they rolled out. And that's what happens when you kind of, you know, coach by the seat of your pants and and go in game to game and just kind of throw guys in and have a loose rotation, and then all of a sudden you got to line up with, you know, Giannis handling the ball and four guys that can't shoot around him and then he's throwing passes out and nobody can do anything and every possession is just an absolute slog. Um, you know, or you have a lineup where it's, you know, Greg Monroe and Jabari are on the front court together and there's just no way against any competent offensive uh, team 
um, that you're going to, you're going to be able to get enough stops to, to win those short stretches that those two play together. Um, and so for me, you know, I think the best choice for them would be to go game to game and have a pretty rigid, you know, this guy, you know, understand who the personnel that they're going to be seeing the next night is, but understand that, that this player is going to come out at this mark and it's going to put this lineup together and then you're going to make another sub and it's going to have this group together. And, you know, obviously a foul trouble or an injury or, you know, a team throws a curveball with how they deploy their personnel and you just don't have a great matchup. You know, then you de- that's definitely where you got to reach and then you got to kind of coach on the fly. But I, I think for Milwaukee, what they need to do is they need to just ha- craft a rotation where they end up with their best five guys in for the last six minutes of the game. And everything before then is about maximizing the potential of every player on the court by specifically making sure there's enough shooting for guys to survive. Um, and that, that is how I would try to approach it. Um, I don't know too many teams and coaches that really are that rigid. Um, you know, you definitely see a lot of coaches, Stan Van Gundy, Brad Stevens, you know, Rick Carlisle, you know, they pretty much have a, a very good understanding of who's going to play and how much, and then when the matchups dictate it, they kind of veer off course. Um, but they definitely have their tight little nine-man rotations. They understand who's in it, who's going to play, and how it makes the best personnel combos on their team. And that's what Milwaukee has to kind of start from the jump. Um, because with, you know, Middleton, Toledovich, and Delvadova as your only real proven threats from the outside, you have to be able to deploy those three and stagger their minutes enough that two of those three are on the court as much as possible. Um, so you don't have these huge gaps where all of a sudden you got, uh, you know, Michael Carter Williams, Giannis Jabari, uh, you know, somebody else who can't shoot, uh, you know, Thon Maker and, and, uh, Miles Plumley on the court and you have no spacing. Um, and, and that, that is what they need to avoid because that is, you know, and I, I used to play poker back in the day and there's a thing you called it a leak. And it was if you always maybe, you know, called when you knew somebody had a hit a flush draw or something and you just gave away money and you gave away money, but you kept doing it. And, and over time, maybe it cost you 20 bucks one hand, maybe it cost you a hundred another hand and maybe you won 50 because the guy was bluffing on one, but over time it's a losing play. And what that is when you coach and you throw out bad lineup combinations, it's a leak. You're losing, you're losing those runs. You, whether it's a couple points here or a couple points there, you're consistently putting lineups out that no matter what broad spectrum of opponent you go against, they are not going to be able to break even on, or they're going to be severely deficient on one end of the floor or the other. And you can be severely division on one end of the floor or the other if you're absolutely top of the league good the other way. So you can have a great offensive lineup that plays no defense, but they better be pretty damn good offensively. You can have a great defensive lineup that plays no offense, but they better be the stingiest five-man group in the league. Um, but what you can have is two teams that are net zero or net zeros negatives on both sides of the floor, and they just had too many of those last year. And whether it was for two-minute stretches or eight-minute stretches, it just was a consistent problem. And, uh, you know, I think that's why something that is more rigid and more structured and just more saying, hey, you know, screw how the other team is going to play their guys. We're going to play our guys in the way that we need to be successful, and then we'll adapt defensively or offensively to make sure it works out. You brought up the word deficiencies there, and I couldn't help but think about the Bucks 
defense. Um, and Javari Parker and Greg Monroe on the floor at the same time attempting to play defense uh, together. So I guess one of the questions I think Frank and I have continued to have is whether or not those two could be on any floor together in any defensive system and have that defense be mediocre. Um, or if it's just not possible with any defensive system, or even if you get rid of Monroe and you just have Jabari Parker, is there a way for him to be average defensively in this Buck system? Um, yeah, I mean, in a vacuum, I'm sure there's a, a way that you could group those two depending on how you played them um, and depending on what the opposing personnel was, where they could be passable. Um, I do think, and I've written about this in other areas, and I've probably talked to anybody who would listen about this theory starting about five years ago, that there are certain player types that are just hard guys to win with. And one of those is Monroe, and he's the, you know, low post, no, you know, um, weak defensive center that isn't, you know, good enough to play on the perimeter and, and get you efficient shots there isn't as dominating as a, a post-up threat as he need to be to, to make you a plus offensively, and you're always going to give up something on the defensive end of the floor with him. He's going to always be targeted in pick and rolls. He's not really good about his positioning. Um, you know, I mean, because, you know, the, the illusion of, you know, defensive stopper is that, you know, you need a guy that's going to, you know, block shots and fly across the lane and, and pin the ball off the glass and stuff like that. Um, but if you look at some of the better defensive players and the guys whose numbers have always been, you know, way better than maybe their stats suggest, um, Marcus Saul probably being the, the foremost guy in this category, you know, Andrew Bogut being another one, those guys are tremendous positionally, but it takes a commitment and awareness to do that, to, to rotate over almost before the play happens to, to make to that area of the floor seem like it's closed off so the guy doesn't even drive. You know, we don't see a block or anything that's spectacular. We just see a play that doesn't happen. Um, and you have to be really locked in to see that stuff and those little nuances happen possession after possession. You know, and that's what Monroe would have to be to be great. But so far to this point, he just doesn't flash a desire to want to do that. And so I think that always means that when you're on the floor, when he's on the floor, you really can only survive defensively against teams that just don't have very good offensive personnel. Like they don't have a point guard that can beat you up and pick and roll. You know, they don't have a team that swings the ball and is going to make Monroe move and rotate over side to side. You know, you can survive against those teams, but those are the teams that you should in theory be beating anyways because they're bad because <laughs> they don't have personnel that can exploit that stuff, which means that when you get into the playoffs, you know, you're never going to see those teams, um, which means Monroe is always going to kind of be the type of player type that I think it's always going to be destined to be a 15, 20-minute offensive anchor for a bench reserve unit that plays a little bit in the late first, early second. You can kind of run your offense through him, but then the minute, you know, the better personnel starts coming in, he starts, and he has a chance to get exposed, you know, he's out of the game for someone that's more of a two-way player or can at least show you up defensively. Um, you know, and, and when it comes to Jabari Parker, it's kind of the same thing. Um, you know, it's hard to tell how much of his struggles, especially early last season, were related to the ACL thing. Um, you know, those guys, those injuries, it, it tends to be a couple of years before those guys really 
get back to where they were, um, you know, especially just from a confidence standpoint of, you know, feeling trusting their knee where they can make a hard cut and a hard shuffle and turn and run and, and their knee doesn't explode. I mean, it's a pretty traumatic experience, and anybody that's had that type of injury could, is probably nodding their head in agreement. Um, you know, and then the other part is just kind of getting back to, you know, moving at that speed and anticipating and stuff. And so it's hard to tell if, you know, he just isn't physically gifted enough to be a good on-ball defender. Um, you know, obviously his awareness off the ball needs to improve tremendously. Um, and just his general commitment, um, you know, there were games early last year that I caught uh, where the dude, you know, would kind of almost jog back after showing off a pick and roll, um, you know, and then that forces a rotation over and then that forces a scramble situation on the other side. And so somebody else's man may score on the play, but it's all linked back to just a general lackadaisical effort on, on Parker's part. Um, you know, so for him, it, it's just going to be, a twofold thing, you know, one, an evaluation period. Does he have the physical tools to be a good on-ball defender? Um, you know, that's something that this year you're going to get a pretty you know, affirmative answer on. You're going to really be able to see whether or not, because, you know, now you can't blame the injury. He's had some recovery time. You know, now it's pretty much this is what he's going to be athletically. Um, and then the other part is, off the ball, is he going to consistently dial in possession after possession um, to be, you know, someone that's going to be able to help their teammates out, to be able to force guys in, into the inefficient spot on the floor, to understand his assignment? You know, is he going to do that on a nightly basis? Um, if he does one of those two things, he'll be an average defender at, at the very least. If he does neither of those two things, it's always going to be hard to pair him with a defensive center that doesn't, that doesn't protect your back line, um, you know, and and that's something that you that this year will give you a pretty definitive answer one way or the other. You so our listeners can't can't see this, but on the video chat, um, Eric was just vigorously nodding while Brett was describing uh, some of these <laughs> lackadaisical <laughs> defensive uh, moments, and uh, uh, I'm not sure if my my video is frozen for you guys, but I was sitting there nodding as well. Uh, and, and it's tough with Jabari because I think. We saw it, especially sort of December on, they often tried to put him on a wing where he was, you know, having to kind of focus more in, in kind of, as a one-on-one defender. He was not in as many kind of pick-and-roll type situations because obviously, you know, a, a small forward isn't going to be a screener as much as a power forward. And, you know, it seemed like he was better suited to, the, to that and that he could defend in kind of like three- to four-second bursts in those situations, which is, like, encouraging. But then, you know, as Brat was alluding to, it's like, Kind of you make kind of want to tear your hair out because um, when he you know then gets into a pick and roll and he just you know runs to the wrong side of the screener and the guy you know everybody else goes to the opposite side and then he kind of like half jogs to get back into the play and you know it's just it's just difficult because obviously he's not a guy you know you wouldn't say Jabari Parker is you know a bad apple or a, a lazy guy per se but it just I think Brett was alluding to you know the the concentration and focus piece and you know. It's it's tough because I don't you know again it's like you can just sort of tell a guy like oh well you just got to focus every possession it's like okay well I think Jabari Parker can process the idea of that but then to actually lock in uh, as Brett was saying that's obviously not something that necessarily just you know you just say oh okay I, I now I know that I need to lock in every possession I'm just going to do that so I think that's a really interesting um, 
you know, thing to watch for this season is, is, is where does Jabari's defense go? And obviously that's going to be pretty important for a Bucks team that, you know, is not going to become a playoff team if they're back where they are defensively where they were a year ago. And that will be it for part two of our conversation. We will have part three of our conversation with Brett a little bit later this week. And we still have some more things to cover there. We got to talk about Miles Plumley. We need to talk about John Henson. We need to talk about some of the young guys, including Thon Maker. So we'll get into all of that in part three of our conversation with Brett Corminas. A reminder, today's Lockdown Bucks was brought to you by SeatGeek. Download the mobile app for the easiest way to buy tickets, and the promo code LOBUCKS gets you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. Again, that's L-O-B-U-C-K-S. As always, this has been the Lockdown Bucks Podcast. Thanks for listening.